0: Happy Wednesday. So good to be back again with you all today, and we are grateful and excited to have back in chapel speaking uh, Sky Jathani. And if you were here on uh, Monday, he's going to be continuing uh, a little bit of what he's talking about in terms of the ways that we relate to God um, in prayer and with one another and, and our understanding of who God is and how we can have a constant communion with Him. And so let me tell you just a little bit about Sky. We'll invite him back up um, as he shares with us. So, um, Sky is, is an author, an ordained minister, a podcaster. Um, he co hosts um, a podcast called The Holy Post with Phil Vischer. Uh, you may recognize that name as the creator of VeggieTales. So, my kids are watching VeggieTales often. So, uh, we benefit from that. Uh, but this is a podcast it's a it's, it's very uh, a unique one in terms of all of the different podcasts that are out there where it really blends uh, a sense of, of of humor and theological nuance and you you will laugh, you will have your mind hurt at times at the within the same you know hour hour and a half that you would listen and just the guests that are on there and the dialogue and the conversation really. Uh, I believe will help equip you uh, to really live as a kingdom citizen in this earth. Um, He also writes a daily devotional called With God Daily, um, and it's actually a daily devotional, as he says, for those who hate daily devotionals. So that caught my attention because I tend to be that way, but it, writing again with a, a different perspective and nuance and just a rich blend of Christian history, but also with uh, a contemporary relevancy um, to our day today. So you can check that out at skyjathani.com. And uh, would you join me, though, right now and welcoming back? And uh, Sky, so welcome up to the stage. Just as a sign of your participation, would you extend your hand? out as we pray over him and over our own hearts as he shares with us today. So, Father in heaven, um, we do indeed want to pray, uh, continue uh, agreement with what we just declared in prayer through song. Uh, we want to present our bodies before you. We want to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and we want to declare you as Lord uh, over our mind, over our will, over our emotions, over every aspect of our life. And Lord, we do thank you uh, for bringing our brother Sky back here to share with us Uh, We're grateful for the ways that you have led him um, in your kingdom and and to this campus now. And as he shares um, from from your word to us, I pray that you would help us to be fully attentive to you, uh, to the word that you will speak uh, through him. And Lord, I pray that it would land upon the good soil of hearts, that it would take root and that it would produce, uh, Lord, true kingdom fruit that would last. And so we love you. Lord, thank you for loving us first and thank you that we get to be together with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Oh, come on. You guys are half
1: asleep. Good morning. Morning. Um, I'm grateful to be here again. I really, really do enjoy my time on campuses like this, partly because my experience in college was so formative for me, so important, and I recognize this is a very formative season for all of you. So the opportunity to share with you both in a setting like this and in more intimate conversations is important, and I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity to do that. When I was a college student, which is remarkably almost 30 years ago now, I was at a very different place than Northwestern. I went to a large state university, about 20, 25,000 students. And my freshman year, I got involved with a campus ministry, and it was a really interesting time for that ministry on that campus because There was a vibrancy and energy about it which was unique. I have honestly not experienced something like that since. So despite having 20, 25,000 students on this secular campus doing all the things you would expect to happen at a large secular university, we had about 1,000 students involved in this campus ministry. We would gather on Thursday nights in an auditorium about like this, and we would fill out the place. And it was just electric with... The music and the singing and the speakers and and again you gotta remember, nobody was going to this because they needed a chapel credit. Nobody was going because they were being told they had to. This was a completely secular environment. So everybody who was a part of this campus ministry was there because they genuinely wanted to be. There were Bible studies happening all over campus, people's lives being impacted, and there's this. Sense of um, unity and power that comes from being a a minority group within a larger setting that's trying to live differently. There was no room for lukewarm Christianity on that campus. You were either hot or you were cold. That was it. And so my time in that ministry was really formative and, and powerful and impactful. And there was one student who was a senior when I was a freshman that I got somewhat close to. His name was Jason. And he also was involved in that campus ministry and was one of the student leaders of the ministry. He was the guy who was always up front on the stage. He was teaching classes. He was leading Bible studies with underclassmen. He was the one leading the retreats in the fall and conferences during Christmas break. And, you know, when other students were going to Panama City or Cancun on spring break, what Was Jason doing? What was I doing? We were going to the Middle East to share the gospel with people. I mean, crazy stuff was going on there. So Jason for me was this upperclassman that kind of epitomized what it meant to be a faithful Christian in a highly secular campus environment. He just was the man. So Jason graduated at the end of his senior year, the end of my freshman year, and I didn't see him again for about 18 months. And then my junior year, I ran into Jason. He'd been out of school for a year and a half at that point. I was at a bar in the middle of town, which is just what you did there. I was at a bar, and I ran into Jason at the bar, except, um, how do I put this delicately? He was engaged in activities that one would not assume to be consistent with a Christian lifestyle. And he saw me see him engaged in these activities, and like the blood drained from his face. And so he he came over to me and we went outside and he started talking to me and just tears started rolling down his eyes. And he talked about how a year, 18 months after leaving that university and leaving that campus ministry, his faith had completely fallen apart. And as Jason was telling me this, I kind of had a crisis of faith. Because it dawned on me that if Jason who was the Christian guy on campus, who did everything right, who was up on the stage, who was completely involved in all the activities and the Bible studies and evangelism and missions and all this stuff, if he, within 18 months of graduating, had completely abandoned his faith, what were we really doing here? Was it all just a sham? If his life was not permanently transformed, then whose could be? We'll come back to Jason's story in a little bit, but I I begin with that because what I really want to talk to you about this morning is what brings real transformation. You know, in the American church, we have more resources than any Christians who've ever lived throughout history. More Christian colleges and universities, more campus ministries, more churches, more Christian conferences and radio stations, books and movies and paraphernalia and Jesus junk and t-shirts and bracelets, and it goes on and on and on and on. We have all of these things that we can fill our lives with to make us feel like we're Christian and we're following Jesus, but does it actually transform us, or is it all just for show? I want to take you to a story that contrasts the old covenant model of transformation and the new covenant model. And the argument I'm trying to make to you today is that, unfortunately, an awful lot of us in the American Christian subculture are engaged in an inferior, Old Covenant form of transformation. And we've not really grasped what we're called to in the New Covenant in Christ. In Exodus 34, we read the story about Moses encountering the Lord on Mount Sinai. This is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. If you remember the scene, the presence of God descends on the mountain and the mountain shakes and trembles and there's billowing smoke and it's this ferocious scene. And Moses ascends the mountain into the presence of God and he's given the Ten Commandments and all the instructions for the people of Israel. And then in a really incredible moment of boldness and audacity in Exodus 34, Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. He wants to fully see this God with whom he has been talking. And the Lord says was pleased with Moses' request and responds to him, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. Notice Moses asks to see God's glory, and he responds by saying, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. What's the link between God's glory and God's goodness? God's glory is this impenetrable light that surrounds him, which is, the visible manifestation of God's character. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of what he is like. So when he says, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, what he's saying is, my glory is my character. You are going to see who I really am. And so he does that. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he says, I will pass by you and I will remove my hand and you'll catch a glimpse of me as I pass by. And then after this encounter with God, where he sees God's goodness, his glory, Moses comes down from the mountain. Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30 says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses and that his face was radiant, they were afraid to come near him. So... What appears to have happened is Moses, in the presence of God, in his glory, and his goodness, somehow it, it seared Moses' face. Some of it rubbed off on Moses. And as he came down the mountain, the glory of God is literally radiating from his skin. And the people freak out about this, as you would expect. Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And after all the Israelites came near to him, he gave them the commandments the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant, and that Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord again. Okay, so here's the the pattern that's being established here in Exodus. Moses would go up the mountain, he would meet with God in his presence, he'd get zapped by God's radiant glory, almost like some kind of divine tanning bed. He would come down from the mountain, the people would see, Moses has been in God's presence, the glory is shining off of his face. So he would tell them what the Lord had said, and then he'd put this veil over his face so the people wouldn't freak out anymore. That's the setup in Exodus. From that story, that old covenant story, it would appear that the way we are transformed is by encountering God through external experiences. That like Moses, we need to climb mountains. We need to have these mountaintop experiences where the presence of God meets us and in the presence of his glory and goodness, we ourselves are transformed. It rubs off on us so that we look different, we behave different. The character of God becomes our character. But that's not exactly the whole story. You see, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul picks up this story from Exodus and he adds a detail to it That's not in the original text in the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is arguing that the new covenant in Christ is far greater and surpasses the glory of the old covenant that was given to Moses on the mountain. What occurred with Moses on the mountain was good, it was glorious, it was godly, but now something even greater has come. So in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, We are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at the radiance that was fading away. All right, here's the point of this little Bible lesson Paul adds this detail that's critical for understanding what was going on at that mountain. Moses would come down, they would see the glory of God on his face and then he put a veil on, but he didn't put the veil over his face because the people were frightened of his appearance. What Paul says is that Moses put a veil over his face because he didn't want the people to know that the glory was temporary. He didn't want them to see that behind that veil, the glory was slowly fading away. That the transformation he had experienced in the presence of God was not permanent. Like a... Battery in a flashlight that's losing its charge, the light was getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. So Moses would go back up the mountain, remove the veil, get zapped again, kind of recharged, come back down, they'd see the glory. Ooh, Moses has been with God again. And then he put the veil on to hide it. Here's the point the old covenant model of transformation, of climbing mountains and external experiences, they were good, they were glorious, they were full of God's presence but they were always temporary. And I know you've experienced this. I've experienced this. How many times have you been to some incredibly emotionally stirring, charged environment or event, worship gathering, chapel service, whatever it might be, and you feel God's presence there? You feel transformed when you're there. The energy, the power, the excitement, the the gravity of what the speaker was saying, and the emotion of the worship team. and, And sometimes it's real, just as God's presence was quite real on Mount Sinai. And you come away from that high mountaintop experience, and you're convinced I am changed. I am committed to the Lord. I am changing my behavior. I am getting rid of these things and I'm adding these things into my life. And you tell your friend or your roommate or your parents or whoever, oh, I've had this transformative experience. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand. I cried the tears. And then what happens? In a day, three days, a week, the glory fades. And you slip back to being the person you always were before. Does it mean that the experience was fake? Illegitimate? No. It may have been quite real. Just as Moses' experience on the mountain was very real. The problem is these external experiences never lead to permanent transformation. The glory always fades. And when the glory fades, we do exactly what Moses did. We hide the inglorious reality of our lives. In so many of our Christian communities, our churches, schools, campus ministries, we don't feel the freedom to be honest about the uglier parts of our life. So we hide behind a veil of religiosity, a facade of Christian spirituality, a mountain of Jesus T-shirts and bracelets, of Christian ease, and praise music. Because if people knew what I was really struggling with, if they knew the burdens and pains, the doubts and struggles, the temptations and failures, if they knew who I really was, they would be devastated by that, and they might conclude that my faith is also a sham. The glory fades, so we hide behind a veil. We were talking just before we came out for this With some of the student students in the back and and with Justin, how in so many of our Christian communities we only allow a single dimension to be expressed, and that's praise and joy. And we don't give space for all the other expressions of the human divine relationship we see in the Psalms, things like doubts and lament and pain and sorrow. Because we exist behind a veil. The other thing we do, like Moses, is when the glory fades, beyond just hiding the truth of our lives, we also keep going back up the mountains. We think, all right, the last one didn't work. The glory faded. What I need is a higher mountain. What I need is a more glorious experience. What I need is that more invigorating worship experience. I need that bigger church, that more dynamic speaker. I need to go on that missions trip, or I need to go overseas, or I need to do that special program because if I go up that mountain, I'll be even closer to God. I'll even get more of his glory, and the transformation will last even longer. And so we build bigger and better mountains. We become like worship junkies. Where the fix we got last time isn't enough, now we need an even bigger one. I wonder if that's part of the reason why in the American church we keep building bigger and bigger churches, make the music louder and louder and louder, demand more and more exciting preaching. Because we're so fixated on this old covenant idea that transformation is going to happen through an external experience with God, and when it fades, we look for an even stronger hit. That is not what we are called to in Christ. As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 3, that old covenant model, that mountain climbing idea, as good as it may be, is not as good as what we have in the new covenant. And the evidence would bear this out. As I said, we have more resources. We've built better mountains than any other church in the history of the world here in America. And yet, what does the evidence show? Is it working? Is the church in America having a positive impact on our society? Are more people really following the way of Jesus? Even within the church, among those who call themselves disciples of Jesus, the evidence says the opposite. Research done by the Barna organization and the Gallup organization was compiled, and the conclusion was this, this is a quote, survey after survey demonstrates that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. That's a pretty damning indictment of the mountains we've built. Doesn't mean God isn't real, doesn't mean his glory isn't genuinely encountered there, it just means it always, always fades. The transformation is always temporary. Thankfully, there's an alternative. In the Old Testament, after receiving God's law at Mount Sinai, after being called into relationship with him, the people over and over and over again failed. The glory always faded for them too, despite encountering him at Sinai, despite encountering him in the tabernacle and in the temple. Over and over and over again, the Israelites went back to their old ways. They followed the pagan temptations around them. They rejected God or walked away from justice to oppress the people around them and eventually God through the prophet Jeremiah spoke to his people and he made them a promise that a new covenant was coming that's not like the old one through Jeremiah he said a time is coming when I will make a new covenant with my people it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers through Moses when I led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai because they broke that covenant This is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the new covenant that Paul then speaks about in 2 Corinthians 3, that surpasses the glory of the old one. He says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory because we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying is God used to be encountered on mountains. You had to go into a temple or a tabernacle and you'd encounter this external presence of God's glory. But it was temporary and it faded. But the new covenant is different because we don't encounter the presence of God in a worship service or in a mountaintop or in a temple or through a sermon or from a pastor. Where we encounter the presence of God in the New Covenant is through the presence of the Spirit of God within us. And the glorious part of it Is unlike the external encounter that always faded, the internal presence of the glory of God is only ever increasing in us from one glory to the next. Which means, however sinful and broken I am right now, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, I'll be less sinful, less broken. Reflecting a bit more of the goodness and character and glory of God. And because of that ever increasing glory, we have the freedom to remove our veils and be honest. To build relationships and communities of authenticity rather than dishonesty. To be real about what God is doing in my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, rather than fake and hiding. But if transformation in the new covenant is from inside out, then the way we engage and cooperate with God in that work has to change. It means that the primary way we are going to grow in our faith and be changed is not by climbing bigger and better mountains. It's not by bigger and better retreats. It's not by bigger and better worship services. The way we participate with God in this transformation from the inside out is primarily through prayer. It is through the quiet, reflective cooperation with God within us. This is why Paul says elsewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The fear and trembling language there is lifted from Exodus. It's the same fear and trembling that people experienced when the presence of God came upon Mount Sinai and the mountain shook and the people were terrified. Paul is saying that same power that existed at Sinai You now have, but he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. The power of Sinai is encountered within you through the presence of the Holy Spirit, not through climbing a mountain or going to a church or engaging in a worship event. Let me go back to the story of Jason. As he and I were there outside that bar that night, and he's in tears talking about the collapse of his faith, I had a crisis of faith because as I was looking at Jason, I was a junior at the time, I realized I was about a year or two away from being exactly where he was. Through my college years, I was going every Thursday night to those big worship events. I was involved in the Bible studies. I was going on the trips overseas. I was learning all the stuff that we are supposed to do as faithful Christians in this campus ministry. And yet what he told me was when he graduated and that apparatus, when those mountaintop experiences were no longer available to him, it all came crashing down. And I realized when I graduate, it's all going to come crashing down. The glory is going to fade and I'm going to end up right where he is. And it scared me to death. Doesn't mean that ministry was flawed or wrong or... No, it was full of God's glory and goodness. But it was insufficient. It wasn't enough to bring lasting permanent transformation. So after that encounter with Jason, I kind of had this crisis, like what am I going to do? How do I make sure I don't end up like that? So here's what I did. There was an older man I knew probably in his 30s at the time. And he had a quality about him as a Christian that was rare, that I didn't see often. I recognized in him a deeper, more grounded sort of communion with God that wasn't caught up in all the hoopla of the events and the worship and all that sort of stuff, all the mountaintop stuff. And I went to this guy and I said, can you help me understand your faith? Because I think I need what you have. And essentially what he did he taught me how to pray. Through his guidance and mentoring, I began a practice my junior year of college of at least once a week. I would drive five miles out of town to a large state park, these woods and trails, and I would spend hours and hours and hours alone in those woods. I shouldn't say I was alone. I spent hours and hours and hours alone with God in those woods. No headphones, no music, just myself. Learning how to commune with God. Learning how to be honest with Him about what was really in me. Learning to work out my salvation with fear and trembling in cooperation with God. Going deep in communion with the Holy Spirit. In those woods, my faith became my own. In those woods, I made some of the most important decisions of my life. I made the decision to ask my wife to marry me. In those woods, I first sensed a genuine calling into ministry. In those woods, I came to know who I was and who God had called me to be. I don't think this is an exaggeration. I am only standing here today because of those years walking in those woods, of learning the new covenant secret to transformation, in realizing that the foundation of the Christian life is not about our circumstances. It's not about the mountaintops we climb. It's not about the euphoric moments, as glorious and wonderful a gift as they may be the foundation of the Christian life that leads to lasting transformation is our private communion with God through the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. And if you are not cultivating that part of your life, as wonderful as all these external things may be, you will find the glory will always fade. I don't want to dismiss... Or have you walk away thinking in any way that the mountaintops we've built are bad? They're not. The problem is not the mountaintops, but what we expect from them. When we expect the transformation of our life to happen through a ministry, an event, a retreat, whatever, fill in the blank, we are putting an expectation on those things that God in the new covenant never intended. And we're ignoring the greatest gift he has given us, which is the presence of his spirit with us. So, sisters and brothers, these very formative years of your life, by all means, take every advantage that you have here at Northwestern. Engage on those mountaintop opportunities when you have them. Thank God for them. But don't ignore the important part of walking with God in the valley of seeking the solitude and quietness and stillness. Because in those places, you will come to discover who you truly are, who God has called you to be, and you will discover a glory that doesn't fade. Not only does the future of your faith depend on those kinds of moments, but so does the future of the church in America. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your grace that you would give us a vision for that which is best, not just that which is good. You have blessed us with so many good gifts. May they not distract us from the very best, which is yourself. For those here who are struggling, who feel they have to hide behind a veil because they can't be honest about the unglorious things in their life, may they experience the freedom that comes from your presence with them in the Spirit. May they find safe sisters and brothers, friends and mentors with whom they can remove the veil and be honest about what's really in them. And then cooperate with you in a process of transformation, knowing that tomorrow, next week, next year, the glory will only increase. And Lord, as that authenticity takes root here in this community and in other places around our country, we ask that the church would be renewed as a place of honesty, of power, of transformation that comes from you rather than our own ingenuity and genius. Lord, we do pray for revival and renewal, but we pray that it would not come from a man-made mountaintop, but from the inner presence of your Spirit. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever.